computers. This is Intelligent Performance. Welcome to Intelligent Performance, where we are fanatical about excellence in human endeavor. Now, what would it be like if you were able to collaborate with some of the biggest celebrities out there? Let's say Grant Cardone, Alex Hormozzi, Patrick Beck David, or Robert Greensay. Imagine just one of those people and the impact they can have on your life. Well, meet Nick Hutchinson. He's the author of Rise of the Reader. He's the founder of Book Thinkers, and he is an expert in how to take knowledge and turn it into action and results in his life. We're going to dive into exactly his kind of step-by-step guide as to how he learns from books, how he takes knowledge and turns it into action, and how you can also learn from experts and people specializing in this space to collaborate with people just like that. He's had Grant Cardone, Alex Hormozzi, Patrick Beth, David, Robert Green all on his podcast. Here's a chance for you to learn how exactly you can do that in your life. Let's dive straight in. Nick, thanks so much for being here. And you have spent your whole career today really focusing on upskilling yourself and you've become a master and now helping others master that as an actual skill. Where I'd love to start is actually just your take on intelligent performance in in your space. Michael, I appreciate the question. One of my favorite quotes of all time comes from Napoleon Hill, and it says, action is the real measure of intelligence. And so I'll restate it one more time. Action is the real measure of intelligence. And so when you ask me that question and I apply it to my space of reading and implementing books, so many people are reading books and unfortunately they go in one ear and out the other. They fail to take action. They might visualize it, but they never actually take anything from the book and implement it to change their behavior, improve themselves as a leader, manager, whatever the case may be. And so I think intelligence, as far as performance goes, it comes through action. You have to take action on what you're learning, implement it into your skill or workplace or relationship or health or personal finances. And that's where the magic happens. It's through taking action. And I think yeah, I think you bang on. And I think it, well, if, I, if I was to think of someone who epitomizes this quote around intelligent performance, I would say is you, Nick. And when I heard about you on another podcast, I was like, wow, this guy is perfect for what we're talking about. Just because you're, you've read, I think it's over 400 self-development books. Your focus is not just on reading them, but you know, you've, you've got into a huge level of granularity, intentionality around actually diving into the books. And so today, to help the, the list, I'd really love to focus on What's the difference between you and, let's say, the average reader? What's the di- what's the difference in your approach that you've adopted, and and what kind of some of the results that you've seen and materialized from that? Well, when I first started reading personal development, self help, nonfiction, business style books about ten years ago, uh, I would always fail to take action. I think that's the biggest difference. So I would optimize for the wrong things, vanity metric, like. 26 books a year, 52 books a year, 100 books a year. And I was reading for the sake of reading. And as a result, I wasn't changing. I was just reading a lot. Mm. (laughs) And so where I am today and the difference between me and I think the average person just starting out in the personal development book space is that I optimize for taking action. That's what I measure. My goal is to implement two or three things from every single book that I read. And I don't stop I don't move on until 
I've effectively implemented something from the book. So again, action is the real measure of intelligence, not your ability to sit back and repeat quotes from a book, but your ability to actually use what you're being taught. Because at the end of the day, there is literally a book to solve every single problem that we face as human beings. Life doesn't have to be so hard. Other people have already figured it out. And you don't solve your problems by reading the book. You solve your problems by implementing the greatest lessons from the people who have written the books. So I think that's the biggest difference. And I'd love to kick off with a question in there around like around this whole if people aren't necessarily readers i think a lot of our audience would be but for those who aren't and i know this is going to be a point of contention whenever i've recommended books you get the i don't have time uh you know i'm not a big reader you get all this kind of typical perhaps kind of canned response almost what's your take on that when you've no doubt come across that when you're such a big advocate for reading and like you say the intelligent performance piece around what you're talking about is don't try and solve the problems on your own. Look to others who've actually solved it. So, yeah, how do you navigate that resistance piece or that unfamiliarity? Well, first, I love to ask the following question. I love to say, if I paid you $10,000, insert whatever currency you want. If I paid you $10,000 to read a book by the end of the month, do you think you could do it? And that same person who just told me they don't have time to read says, well, I could read five if I got paid $10,000 for each one. And so they've unknowingly fallen into my trap because they've admitted they could read, but they're choosing not to. Oftentimes they don't value reading enough to prioritize it over something else in their calendar. And so they default to things like social media and watching Netflix and hanging out at the bar instead of focusing on serving their future self and reading personal development books. So that's question number one. If I paid you $10,000 to read a book by the end of the month, do you think you could do it? Because right away that establishes the fact that they could be, they just don't value it enough. So then I think question number two is something like, is there a problem in your life that you just can't get rid of? A pain that you deal with on a daily basis. And if they say yes, it could be related to their personal finances, their business, their health, their nutrition, their relationships, their headspace, whatever it is. Everybody's got problems. If they can admit to that, then you could say, well, why are you choosing to deal with it on a daily basis? Because if you don't get rid of it over the next 30 years, so 365 times 30, over the next 30 years, if you don't remove that problem, you'll deal with it 11,000 times. Why would you choose to go through that? Other people have clearly solved the problem. They've spent decades of their life to figure it out. And you could get access to the solution for $20 in a few hours of your time. <laughs> They've admitted to me that you could read a book. Yeah. Now you can solve the problem. And I think once you start to step into that headspace of life doesn't have to be so hard. Other people figured it out. Like you can use these books to improve your own life. People start to open up to the idea of solving problems. And I think that's a great place to start as far as reading personal development books. And for you, when it comes to actually reading, I'm intrigued. Tell us about your process. I'm, I'm sure a lot of people ask about your, your top books, and maybe we'll, we'll get to that. I'll put that in some of the show notes. I'm really mainly interested to focus on your system because I think that's what differentiates because you can read all the books, as you mentioned. Tell us about your system. You, let's say you've got that book in front of you. We'll call it XYZ. And... 
how are you navigating it? What systems are you putting in place to actually capture, A, the lessons, the insights, the how it applies to you, the, those types of things? How are, you, how are you navigating that kind of from a structural perspective? Well, it starts by optimizing for action. And so right in the beginning of, of opening up a book, I decide to set an intention for each book that I read. And it follows the SMART goal process. So the audience might be familiar with it, but I'm happy to run through it one more time for everybody as a way to familiarize ourselves with it. So SMART is an acronym that stands for specific, measurable, attainable, meaning realistic, relevant, meaning you're emotionally connected to the outcome, right? It's solving pains or helping you develop a skill set or satisfy curiosity, level up in life. And then T stands for time bound. And so if you set a SMART goal for each book that you read, you're baking action right into the beginning of the process. So I'll give you an example. Uh, actually, why don't you tell me what's one or two of your favorite books of all time? Magic of Thinking Big by David Schwartz. Okay. So The Magic of Thinking Big. What I would do if I was reading that book is I would sit down, I'd read the cover, I'd read the back cover. I'd say, okay, this book is about up-leveling my thinking. And then I would set a smart goal, something like find and implement at least two ways to think bigger by the end of November or think bigger in my business to make it a little bit more specific by the end of November. And that is specific. I know exactly what the goal is. It's measurable. Peter Drucker, the legendary management guru, would always say, what's not being measured can't be managed. So you need to know whether or not the book has achieved its goal. Did you find and implement at least two ways to improve your thinking as it relates to your business or not? That's attainable. I didn't say like 10x your business by the end of the month. Just find and implement two things, right? We're optimizing for action. Are you emotionally connected to it? Is it relevant? Well, of course it is. We all, we all want to think bigger at life, especially after reading that book, because it will tell you that like your artificial limitations are the only thing holding you back. And then time bound by the end of November. And so what I'll do with that intention for the book is I'll write it right on the inside cover right. and I'll review it right? I'll reread it every time I read another chapter because I'm telling my brain what to filter for. I'm sharing my goal with the book. Hey, Magic of Thinking Big by David Schwartz. My goal is to find and implement at least two ways to think bigger in my business by the end of November. And I'm telling my brain what to filter for. And then boom, it will just jump off the page to you. Like, here's the strategy that you can implement. And it will become so obvious to you and I think that's the way that then we kind of prepare for taking better action is by setting an intention for the book. So that was a lot, but that's kind of step one in my process is setting an intention for the book. There are a yeah. whole bunch of other steps in the process, but let's cool. pause there for a minute. Well, where do you go from there? Because I, maybe the clues in the title of that one, but let's say you've got a book called Penguin or, you know, like, and perhaps the, the outcome's not so obvious. How do you ensure that your goal is actually relatable to book content? Sometimes it, it starts early in the process, like by choosing the right book. And so in my book, Rise of the Reader, I have a whole personal inventory that you can go through. It's a series of questions that you can ask around deciding on the next book that you read. Because at the end of the day, the best books are ones that you have an emotional connection to. You're looking for a specific outcome. And so you can set your goal around that specific outcome. Like... If I just started with a blank slate and I said, I want to think bigger, there are only a couple of books that come to mind. The Magic of Thinking Big, maybe The 10X Rule by Grant Cardone, a couple of books like that. And so once you decide the book, then you build your goal. I would say 
if you were reading a book that's a little bit more ambiguous, find a way to find a way to take action. And it could be as simple as like learning two new things. Like I'm I'm find and learn at least two new concepts around business strategy by the end of November, whatever the goal is. Your goal could be as simple as I'm looking to be entertained, uh, you know, and escape my current reality by reading this book, like whatever it is. Um, but let's say we're continuing with the magic of thinking big. What I think the next step in my process, and I think this is a really important thing for people to break when they're first starting the reading process, is that you shouldn't multitask. So reading and taking notes are two completely separate activities. So we shouldn't try to do them at the same time. It's something that I did for a while. If something excited me, I would stop and I would take notes on it. And I would circle it and I would think about it and I would totally disrupt the reading process. But I've read far too many productivity books at this time to think that any type of multitasking is okay. So instead, I want to monotask. I want to focus on one thing at a time. So I choose to read. If I find something related to my intention, I'll quickly circle the page number and bracket off the section that I want to revisit. But I try not to lose my reading momentum because I want to finish that entire reading experience and then go back as a separate activity and reread only the things that I've highlighted, which is a much smaller percentage of the book, maybe 5%, right? You don't need to reread the whole book twice, just the 5% that means the most. Mm -hmm. Then what I'll do with those set of maybe, let's say, 10 potential action, 10 potential strategies for thinking bigger in my business, I'll look at that list and I'll say, well, implementing 10 things is not realistic. I bet 20% of these can lead to 80% of the changes that I'm looking for. I bet 20% of these are more exciting than the other 80%. So I'll go through that process of elimination and I'll just try to implement the activities that have the most leverage, the most meaning, the most potential impact in my life. And again, your goal is just to implement one, two, maybe three things from each book you read, not 15 or 20 things. And that's an issue that a lot of people have with their reading process is they get overwhelmed with all of the opportunities to implement. And as a result, they don't take any action. So mm. small action is better than no action at all. Super cool and amazing. And what about your tracking system? Have you got, obviously you've read a lot at this point, you seem to have great clarity in terms of being a draw from specific books, even just in, when we were talking about, um, you know, certain strategies, you can go straight to it, almost like a, a catalog mind. Is that, is that just how you're innately wired or is that to do more with a system that you've built, which kind of allows you to keep, keep that fresh or keep that in existence perhaps? That's another great question. Very early in my reading process, I noticed I had the awareness to realize that I had a retention issue. So people would say to me, hey, did you read Rich Dad, Poor Dad? I'd say, yeah. And they'd go, what's your favorite takeaway? And I'd be like, I don't know. Uh, I don't remember. You know, And that would happen so often that I started to research, how do I retain more from the books I was reading? And I came across a great book called Unlimited Memory by Kevin Horsley. And Kevin Horsley when he was younger, he had some learning disabilities. He was told that he didn't have a great memory. And so he dedicated his life pretty much to figuring out how to effectively store, organize, and then access the information that he was reading. And check this out. At one point, he won a competition called the Everest of Memory, where you memorize the first 10,000 digits of pi. So somebody would say, what's digit number 5,206? And he would know what it is. I mean, that's crazy. And so we don't have 
limited bandwidth. We have the ability to retain almost anything. It's just a matter of, can you develop a connection to it in your brain mm-hmm. enough? Like, can you strengthen that connection so that you can retain it and pull it out at a moment's notice? People have an organization issue, not a memory issue. And so I've realized over time that when I take action, my ability to retain something is almost perfect. Right. right. So my goal is never to retain 25 quotes from a book from a book. It's just to take action on a few things. Once I've experimented with something in my physical reality, it's almost impossible to forget it. You know what I mean? Love that. Yeah, it's it's I guess that again, optimizing for you you're calling it optimizing for action, but I guess you're also optimizing for retention as well. And yes. Love that. I'll I'll add some additional context here because I do have some storage systems. So I use Evernote as an online notebook. I use the Evernote web browser to type my notes into and store things. And I also use the phone app on my phone. So I do love to rewrite my notes first on paper, then into an online notebook because repetition leads to retention. That's one of those home run lines that I learned from Kevin Horsley and that book, Unlimited Memory. Repetition leads to retention. If you repeat something often enough, you're strengthening that neural connection to where it's stored in your brain, and then you're able to access it with more ease. So that's kind of step number one. Step number two for me, and I have the whole template available in my book, is that I use an activity tracker. My activity tracker is a place for me to store the actions that I'm taking and for me to set goals around them and to measure my results. And so it sounds kind of crazy, like this whole quantified lifestyle, building out a spreadsheet, but I'll say this, as Jocko Willink says, discipline equals freedom. If you're able to do eight hours of work in six hours time because you're super disciplined, you create more freedom than having to spend 10 hours doing it because you're busy on your phone all day long, right? Mm. And so for me, the discipline of taking great notes, storing them efficiently, reviewing them pretty often, and then also a place to measure my action. Yeah, it sounds a little bit crazy, but it's not that hard to set up and it creates a ton of freedom and flexibility in my life. Wow. That's, I've just sat here thinking I've never brought such diligence or thinking to like, how do I optimize this? How do I bring in this vein of this show, like the intelligent performance piece around reading? And I think that say, and then it comes to, retention, then it comes to upskilling, then it becomes becoming better. And how do you optimize to become better? <laughs> That's a really, um, I can see it's an incredibly powerful tool here, right? And, and one thing which I was really impressed to hear about you is how you've been able to collaborate or utilize this kind of rare talent. I think you, I think talent's maybe the wrong word because it sounds a lot of it that would overlook the the work which has gone in. So I don't want to call it innate talent, more like developed talent or developed skill perhaps is a more accurate way to put it. But tell us how you've utilized that then then to get a actually add value and collaborate with some of the biggest names in the industry. It's people which, you know, I had a guest the other day, she was like, I'd love to partner with X, you know, Grant Cardone or or Hormozy. And if we look at who you've actually featured and worked with, well, you actually have all the big names or a lot of the big names which people would kind of drool around. Um, So tell us, how have you then taken that skill, that application of what you're doing to form those collaboration pieces? 
it goes back to books. I, I just read and implement great books. Other people have figured out how to collaborate with the greats. And if you read their books and implement their tactics, you can do the same thing. So I'll, I'll say a couple of things first, and then maybe we can go into some strategies. Number one is that when I was much younger, my ability to communicate didn't exist. I had social anxiety. My language was full of verbal pauses. So, um, uh, so, but blanking out. I was not a very articulate person, but I knew that the ability to effectively communicate what was in my head to other people would lead to a more successful life. I learned that in high school. I learned that in college, the people who could stand in front of the room confidently and present themselves receive better grades. And so about halfway through my college experience, I started to recognize the importance of this. So in order to improve my communication, I did door-to-door selling for a little while. Then I had a phone sales job. I took a couple public speaking classes. I went to Toastmasters, which was a public speaking group in my town that met twice a month and they would give me feedback on speeches. Then I had an in-person sales job where I was flying around the US making sales presentations. Then I started creating content for social media where I was on video seven days a week collecting feedback from the world. Then I decided to host a podcast where I would practice my ability to interview people. And now I'm being interviewed because I have the book. And so it was not an overnight thing where I removed the social anxiety and improved the skill set. But I've had thousands and thousands of opportunities to make small little incremental improvements. I've also read a bunch of books on the subject. So I will say that you can go from inarticulate to articulate. You can go from shy and insecure to confident. It just takes a lot of work. So that's kind of step number one. And as far as the books that I was recommending, so one of my favorites of all time is called The Third Door by Alex Benayan. So the metaphor sort of goes like this. Every nightclub has three ways to get in. Door number one is general admission. So when you're trying to reach out to a hard to reach person, that could be DMs, that could be whatever it is. So general admission. Normally that line at the club wraps around the building. There's a thousand people in line. You have to pay a cover. Maybe you don't even get it. That that stinks. Nobody wants that. Door number two, that's the VIP entrance. Unfortunately, when you're first starting off, you can't go in the VIP entrance. Mm -hmm. Nobody knows who you are. You don't have the money to pay for it. And so you get rejected at that door as well. Well, every nightclub has a third door. And what this might mean in that metaphor is that you have to break in the kitchen window, army crawl through the back, <laughs> come in the back of that club. Like you're still there. It's just you had to find a, find a funny, creative way to get there. And so the third door is all about this guy named Alex and his journey using the third door to get in touch with hard to reach people. And he ends up sitting down with Bill Gates, which wow. is pretty cool. So I started to use some of the tactics in that book to get people on my podcast. And as you highlighted before, I think Grant Cardone was episode number nine on my show. Incredible. So using, yeah, using the third door to get in touch with him, find fun and creative ways to get there. I think uh, that's really important. And then I'll give a second book recommendation there as well called Blue Fishing by Steve Sims. Blue Fishing, it's not about how to get in touch with hard to reach people. I think it's the art of communication or something like that. But there was a really interesting part in the book where he talks about a value exchange. And so when you exchange value with hard to reach people, it doesn't have to be in the same currency. So when you ask Grant Cardone for half an hour of his time, 
that might be worth $50,000, $100,000. You don't have to exchange money. You can exchange something else, an opportunity to sell on your show. And that's what I did. I used the third door to find a creative way to access Grant. And then once it was time to pitch, I offered a value exchange. Hey, Grant, I've got a lot of young, motivated salespeople that have no clue who you are. You can come on my show and you can sell the heck out of all of your programs, your books, tell everybody why they need to pay attention to you. And I used that tactic because Grant's got a little bit of an ego and I knew that if that message got in front of him, he would jump on it. And that's exactly what happened. And then you may have heard me tell this story before, but at the end of my first virtual interview with Grant, again, using the third door, we're still recording and I say, hey, Grant, I'm going to be in Miami in the next couple of months. I'd love to sit down and do an interview with you in person. And he's at the high of just finishing an interview with me. His energy's high. And he's like, yeah, sure, man, whatever. That sounds good. So I clipped just that little piece of him saying yes, sent it to his team. And I said, hey, I'll be here from this date to this date, which was kind of a lie because I wasn't planning on being in Miami. But because I was going to be around, I figured they would say yes. And they did. They chose a date. Then I booked my plane tickets because I'm going down to interview Grant in person. And that picture is going to be worth a lot of money. <laughs> so it was just, again, using funny, creative ways to get in front of these people. Exchange value. Doesn't have to be the same currency. And then you can kind of borrow their credibility to go get the next person. So let's take that value piece. So a lot of people might be going, well, what could you what could you possibly offer Grant Cardone unless you've got you know a huge audience already? You know, he can access audience. He's got let's say unlimited resources at this point to to reach perhaps new people. How do you how do you think about that that word value and how do you kind of try to put yourself in their shoes as to what they might see value? It may be in, in someone who's perhaps less obvious than Grant Cardone. Who, yeah, you're right. Just wants to. Yeah, you know, the unbelievable sales guy and would just sell sell to anyone anytime, anything like that. Well, I think you hit the nail on the head, which is you want to put yourself in their shoes. Listen to a few podcasts, understand what they're selling, what they're promoting, what they care about, and then try to provide value by by making that easier for them. I mean, it could be donating to a charity, it could be providing them a cool, unique piece of art from one of your friends, it could be it could be all sorts of things. Um, you know, for me, it's always the opportunity to present their book in front of my large audience because I always try to strike while the iron's hot. If somebody's promoting a book, I know they're more willing to do an interview related to their book. I have a large audience, an untapped audience. There's so many different ways that you can phrase those numbers so that they become more appealing to people. And yeah, I think that's how you do it. Um, so many different fun and creative ways to provide value. Love that. I'll add one more piece of value that I forgot to add before, which is that charisma, your ability to be liked by somebody else, that is a skill that you can learn and improve. I was not a charismatic person and I also couldn't communicate. So there's a great third book recommendation here in a row, Cues by Vanessa Van Edwards. It's on the art and science of charismatic communication. And so she defines charisma as a perfect blend between competence, so your ability to get something done and know something, provide value, and warmth, your ability to be liked. And so when you're competent and you're warm, people will like you. And then, so I think it's also important when you're reaching out to people and then they check out your social media that you come across as charismatic. 
liked, competent, you know, warm, that type of thing. Wow. Nick, what would you say about innate ability, like natural? What's your perspective on that? Given that you've been able to, what many would describe as a transformation, right? And I think over a long term, it's, sorry, over a long time, it's easy to see transformation. Perhaps if you bring in a narrower focus, it just looks like a slight change. So what's your perspective on that in terms of skills which can be developed versus whether you're born? with it i i've seen a lot of science to support that most of these skills can be improved right they're skills by definition you can improve them with practice and better definition and understanding of a subject i don't know that i believe in a born leader or born entrepreneur or born podcast host or born salesperson i mean in my own experience i was none of those things and now I'm all of those things. And it was through skill acquisition. It was it was by intentionally focusing on improving those skill sets. Even something like empathy. I saw a study recently that shows empathy is a skill set that can be improved. And so, yeah, I don't know. I'm, I'm sure there are a few things out there that are innate, but I think most of them can be improved through skill acquisition. And is that really what you've tried to dial in there to rise as a reader? Is the, is the purpose of this really to help people tap into not just read and, and then become overwhelmed because the book was so amazing and there's 300 things I should apply or could apply? What are you actually trying to achieve with Rise of the Reader in terms of all the other books out there? I want people to realize that they all of us have unfulfilled potential. We're all capable of doing more. And how we reach that potential is one small, manageable, almost imperceptible step at a time, yeah. such as my ability to communicate today was a series of thousands of little experiences. So yeah, you can become healthier, you can become wealthier, you can become happier, you can become a better reader, you can download books and implement them like that. But it does happen over a long period of time, just small steps in the right direction. I. I've said this a number of times before, but I'll say it again because I believe it so much. Life doesn't have to be so hard. A hundred billion people have lived before us. Millions of them have written books and thousands of those books detail how somebody else literally overcame the same problem that you're facing today or developed the same skill that you're looking to develop today. I mean, literally the world's best in every single subject have documented their best life lessons about skill acquisition for $20 a piece. You could spend $100,000 on a coach over five years to improve your selling, or you could just read their books for $20 a piece. <laughs> so yeah, that's that's my main takeaway from this book is like, you're capable of doing anything. And my favorite vehicle, my favorite way to get there is just by reading and implementing books because it's inexpensive, it's comfortable, and uh, it's not that difficult. So I'm intrigued, even though that, I completely agree with you, Nick, and I, and I think a lot of people listening to this would agree with that. What do you think is actually the stops other people then? Why are people still struggling? Why are people still, what is it that has them stay stuck, as it were? One of the many reasons is that we live in an instant gratification society where instead of focusing on developing a skill set, which might take 20 or 40 or 100 hours, we could just go like this all day long and just get hit with dopamine after dopamine after dopamine release. And so, one of the subjects that I talk about in Rise of the Reader is delayed gratification. Are you familiar with the Stanford Marshmallow Experiment? The Where they put marshmallows in front of kids, is that right? 
Yeah, they did. And so uh, what they would do is they'd put a marshmallow in front of a kid and they'd say, you can have the marshmallow or you can wait a few minutes and we'll give you a second marshmallow. So you could get double the reward just by waiting for a few minutes. And then what they would do is they took the kids that could wait, that could delay gratification, and they followed them for the next 30 years or whatever it was. And the ones that could delay gratification were far more successful in life. And so you could think about the importance of delaying gratification with your spending on a day-to-day basis, the food you eat, right? Mm. And so, yeah, it it's tough to to put away your phone or to put away Netflix and focus on a book and just get immersed in skill acquisition or problem solving because it doesn't feel good immediately. It only feels good over time. But I'll tell you what, I'm so happy today that I started that journey 10 years ago. And I know 10 years from now, I'm going to be so happy that I continued reading and implementing these books. I'm always trying to serve my future self. There's a <laughs> there's a great example of this in Living with the Seal by Jesse Itzler. Uh, Jesse was, I think he was three miles into a four mile run and he kind of had a pain or something and wanted to give up. And he started thinking about, well, I have warm clothes at home. It's cold outside. I have pizza that I can heat up. It's going to feel nice. Just give up, go back to the car. And uh, But then he asked himself, when I wake up tomorrow, what will be more fulfilling? Giving up on the run and going home or finishing it? And that's the filtering mechanism. That's the question I ask whenever I'm going through this process myself. Like, what will I be more happy about tomorrow when I wake up? What's more fulfilling? Spending a little bit more time reading or just scrolling on Instagram all day, right? The answer is kind of obvious, but that's, yeah, that's, that's the thing to think about is, I think that's the issue that everybody has with these books is that they're not fun to read and they don't provide instant gratification. Yeah. And they take effort opposed to sitting in front of a Netflix or something like that. Yeah. It's, um, yeah. And especially applying a system as you are and optimizing for action, it's a whole different ballgame. Um, one last question I want to finish with, and that's around failure, because I think a lot of people can read a book and as much as it sounds great when you read the 10X rule and you go, wow, you know, what if? And then you come back to your sales job and you're struggling to get up in the morning. How do you, have you navigated that piece? Because I feel like in terms of, if I was to think about what's at the core of what you're doing, your framing is very, very powerful in terms of how you're accessing even negative information, you're framing and channeling that in the right way to be a, a constructive, I'm going to progress rather than, geez, I've just read this book, I must suck at communication. So how do you think about that piece? Do you have another hour? Because this is one of my favorite subjects. I would say number one, realize that none of these people like Grant Cardone, none of them were an overnight success. None of them are superheroes. One of the things that I've been able to do on my podcast is have that person take the superhero cape off for a minute and be a human. Like Grant Cardone in his late 20s with in and out of drug rehab and alcohol issues and was not very successful. Here he is over 30 years later, he's in his 60s, and now he's talking about success. That process evolved over 30 years, Mm. so it didn't happen overnight. Let's all remind ourselves that we have to put in the work on a day-to-day basis, and we might wake up 20 or 30 years from now successful, but it does take some time. You'll be happy that you did it, though. Um, I think number two is gratitude. So gratitude has been a big focus of mine over the last, I would say, six or seven years. 
Tim Ferriss wrote a book called Tools of Titans, where he analyzed the tips and strategies and tactics of the world's best performers in every discipline of life. And he, he found that a huge percentage of them had some form of daily mindfulness or gratitude practice. So once I read that statistic, I said, all of those people are doing it. I should research it too. I realized that gratitude, when you rewire something from a feeling of lack to a feeling of have, there's so much there's, there's so much more pleasure in life. And so I even had I, I started by journaling three things that I was grateful for every single day. And as a result, I realized that I'd be writing three things the next day. And so I'd start to look for things throughout my day that I was grateful for. And I totally transformed from like this victim mentality, a feeling of, ah, I wish I had that car to like, oh, I'm so happy that I have a car and it's dead. So you, (laughs) when you have a feeling of lack versus a feeling of have, you have gratitude. You can't experience gratitude and victimhood or gratitude and negativity at the same time. And then, so those are kind of the first two things. And then number three, I would say that my biggest issue with the U.S. public education system, at least that's my experience, is that we're taught that failure is a bad thing. We're taught to avoid failure at all costs. If you fail on a test, you'll get held back. If you fail on a test, people will laugh at you. If you fail in front of the class while you're presenting, you know, your grade's going down the toilet. But in the real world, in leadership, entrepreneurship, sales, everywhere. communication, everywhere, failure yeah. is the best teacher available. Yeah. And so if you can stay open to feedback, constructive criticism, and realize that failure is nudging you in the right direction, I think that like that reframe for me has been very important. I think it's one of the most destructive things I think that our education system does. I don't think, like I, I was grew up in Britain and now I live in Australia. I can tell you it's exactly the same down here. And it's the most common thing I find dealing with people. And I hate to use the word, but it's the difference between winners and losers right? It it really is the ones who achieve things in life. And I, and I say that because I, I noticed for myself personally, going you, you, the loser spiral of when it's deconstructive, when you learn, but actually it's, it's it, you kind of chastise yourself, you beat yourself up. And I think failure is something which is really tricky to talk about because it's very unpopular. It's a bit like reading. People don't like to talk about it, but it's actually one of the most freeing things to really optimize and and learn from, right? And tell us in that space, what's your go-to for developing that that kind of, not even winning mindset, but maybe that's the next level up, but even that gratitude piece, where would you go for development in that space? There's a great book from an Indian monk named Gaur Gobaldas called Life's Amazing Secrets. And there's a quote in there where he says, it's not happy people that are grateful, but it's grateful people that are happy. So I'll say that one more time because it's one of those things that you got to think about. It's not happy people that are grateful. So happiness is not the input that creates gratitude as the output. It's the other way around. It's grateful people that are happy. Gratitude is in action. Gratitude creates happiness. That's the input that creates happiness as the output. And that was a big like, oh goodness, I didn't realize that <laughs> for so much of my life. Like, so by deliberately choosing, yeah, by deliberately yeah, choosing to focus on gratitude, mm. then you're happy. And so talking about failure, like I remember the first time that I, so I ran my own house painting business for two summers when I was in college. 
And I remember I would have to go door to door, knock on somebody's home and try to convince them that I was capable of painting their house or that my team was. And I was terrified. And the very first door that I knocked on, I had this whole thing memorized. Like, hey, my name's Nick. I'm a local college student. I'm running a house painting business to help pay for college. I noticed that your paint is chipping. I'd love to come back this weekend and give you a free estimate. Like I had this whole thing planned out. And I remember I knocked on the first door and the woman opened up the door and I just said, hey, would you like an estimate? And she was like, who are you? And an estimate for what? And I was like, oh, I forgot my whole script. And then she slammed the door in my face. And I could have quit, but I said, okay, I need to know the first few words out of my mouth in case I get nervous again. Like this is a learning experience. So then I went to the next house and I, I knew the first couple of words and then they still slammed the door. But I was like, well, don't say this this time. And right when you collect feedback and you're just grateful and you're just happy to show up and be present, like magical things can definitely happen. And I do want to say, because we've talked a lot about the positive stuff, I have failed so much, but it's part of the process. I expect it to happen. So it doesn't surprise me and it doesn't bum me out. I expect mm. to fail. I'm I'm grateful that I'm able to fail. I think it's on, on balance is something which keeps coming up at the moment in terms of that ability to reflect on your performance, but do it in a balanced way. Like if you look at a lot of the, like professional coaches, if you look at the Premier League, what they're really good at is taking a step back and not being over overly optimistic, going it's all going to be great, but not being too like, oh my God, we suck and we're going to be awful. It's that ability, it seems to be, on balance and that I think kind of epitomizes of what what you're doing and your actual approach you, you seem to have a very level-headed um kind of perspective there because is, is, would that be accurate from your perspective yes and that's also a skill set that that I've developed when I was in my late teens and early 20s I was very emotionally reactive so an input would come into my brain and some default response would come out almost immediately as if there was no control. But I started, and, and this is this gets a little goofy for some people, but hear me out. I started meditation. I started practicing meditation on a daily basis, again, six, seven, eight years ago. And it was really uncomfortable and I wasn't very good at it, but I knew that I would develop a skill over time. And so where I am today is logical. An input comes into my brain and I almost have more space, more time to process, not through emotion, but through logic and then formulate a response. Like that little processing time has been so incredibly important for me in being what you described as logical and level-headed as opposed to emotional and irrational, which is where I used to be. And I know that that came through meditation because when you meditate, you try to focus on yourself and on your life from a third party perspective. And that distance, it sort of, it expands over time. And so that's why when you think of like a monk or something like that, you think of somebody who's super calm mm. and you can't, you can't knock them off the rocker no matter what you say or what you do. And that's the, the space that I'm headed towards. Oh, oh well, I think that, that comes across in lace and bounds. Nick, I'm so sorry. We're going to have to put an end to this conversation. I <laughs> I would love to keep going. And um, look, I really encourage the the Rise of the Reader has just been launched. It's about a week and a half, so almost two weeks out in the market. It's already become a bestseller from what I'm aware of in a number of categories. So I'm going to be linking to that in the show notes here. Nick, thank you so much for joining us and thank you for 
demonstrating and optimizing for action, I think it's an amazing and powerful takeaway for people. And I hope that uh, we've optimized for action in terms of this podcast too. So thank you, mate. And um, pleasure to have you with us. Yeah. Thank you so much for the opportunity. And uh, when I make it to your side of the planet, we'll sit down and grab a coffee or something. It sounds fab. 